You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. We're delighted today to be joined again by Molly Ann Brody, Executive Vice President and Chief Operating Officer at the Kaiser Family Foundation, where she also serves as the Executive Director of Public Opinion and Survey Res- and the Survey Research Program. Welcome, Molly Ann. Thank you, and thanks for having me again. I've been really impressed with everything you've been doing over the last year trying to help inform people, so thank you for including me. Thanks, and I also want to thank you for being a member of our high-level panel, the one that we do jointly with Heidi Larson, London School of Hygiene Tropical Medicine, focused domestically on these very issues around vaccine confidence and misinformation. So this is a really nice fit, and you've been so generous to that high-level panel repeatedly over the last 10 months. We're very grateful for that. So you've been, you and your colleagues have been extremely busy and extremely productive, a lot of really great material coming out on a bunch of different, illuminating a lot of the corners that we didn't understand very well. So what I'd like to do is start off by asking you to, let's do a quick tour of Dorizon. It's kind of a snapshot of what we've learned in this last period. Opinions have changed. Opinion among certain populations have shifted significantly. We're talking about vaccine acceptance, hesitancy, refusal. So what are the top line points here? Why don't you start with that and we can we can add a few follow-on questions. Let's start with the big picture. Great. You know, we have been in the field almost continuously. We've talked to, uh, you know, over 11,000 adults in just the last couple months. And, you know, in some ways, there's some really great news. What's been surprising is how fast and dynamic vaccine confidence has moved. So, you know, Back in December, when we first started really asking what people's vaccine intentions were, you know, only about a third thought that they would get vaccinated as soon as possible. But by March, so just, you know, three and a half months later, that would double to 62%. And by March, a third had already been vaccinated. Another three and tenths, they wanted to get it as soon as possible. They were very, very eager. And that was all accompanied by a similar shift in the middle group, the sort of wait and see group. That group had been big in December. It was about four in 10 adults, and that shrunk by half down to about two in 10 adults by March. So that's been really encouraging to see. On the other hand, sort of in a big picture sense, the last group, the very, very reluctant group, has been sort of persistently reluctant. That group started at about two in 10 of the public and it's still there and they're not moving and we haven't found a lot of messages or a lot of information or a lot of things that at least they say will impact their intentions. So that's something we should definitely talk about. And then the other sort of big takeaway is that these shifts that we've seen, these very positive shifts to being eager to get vaccinated have occurred across all population groups. So it really doesn't matter if we talk about it by geography or if we talk about it by partisanship or if we talk about it by race and ethnicity, even to a large degree by age, we have seen these shifts. Of course, the early and the most eager to start with were elderly and people with chronic conditions, those people who were at the most risk for the most severe disease and most you know, horrible outcomes. But what we have seen over these just three months of time is dramatic shifts across all of these different population groups. That's great. Let's say a bit about 
some of the key populations. What had been the trend for black and Hispanic populations? And then we'll move to a Rep Republican evangelical. Well, let's start with black and Hispanic. What's the trend line? Well, I would say, you know, what we have to always think about whenever we talk about any population group is that no group is monolithic, right? So that we, we tend to, and there has been definitely narratives developed about the likelihood of different groups being in one category or another, right? But that's just because there are some trends where people are more, those groups are more likely to be in a category. But so let's focus on Blacks and Hispanics. Blacks and Hispanics, large majorities, over 55% of Blacks right now are either already vaccinated or eager to get vaccinated. Um, what is also true about Blacks and Hispanics is a larger share of them sit in that middle group. So whereas the public overall, about 17% is in the middle group, for Blacks, it's about 24%. So it's just slightly larger. So we've often talked about Blacks and Hispanics as being more in this sort of movable middle or you know, questioning um, and having concerns, but it's it's still a small share of them overall. And then again, there's a smaller share in the definitely not group. So for both of these population groups, both Blacks and Hispanics, we've seen the same shifts that we saw as the total overall, eager, wanting to get vaccinated. There is a slightly larger share of them sitting in this movable middle. That's really important. We need to convert the movable middle to being eager and to be actually getting shots in their arm. And so that's something we should talk more about, what converts them. But And that's why there's sort of been this narrative about Blacks and Hispanics being a, a very important target group, both because there are a slightly larger proportion sitting in that middle group, but also because they have been so hard hit by the pandemic and so disproportionately affected by the virus. So for both reasons, we've talked a lot about these groups and it's important and there's a big focus on these on these population groups. But the first point to take away from them is that the vast majority of them are, are eager. They're very eager. They either already are vaccinated or they want to get vaccinated as soon as possible. So we've seen a significant improvement in terms of acceptability, positive outlook, within both the Black and Hispanic populations in a short period of time. I mean, there was lots and lots of anxiety and concern at the end of the year about because of historical legacy, disparities, access issues, attitudes, bad experiences historically with health systems. This multitude of factors that looked like pretty stark barriers to winning over. And now we've got 24% higher than 17, but it was much higher 90 days ago. Exactly. And you nailed it. All of those, all of those issues that you just raised, the, the historical disproportionate bad treatment by the health, the healthcare system, which is still evident today and still very much on black adults and Hispanic adults minds. So these barriers still exist. Travel barriers, work barriers, worry, their worries are different in that they're much more worried about missing work or not being able to take off work if they have side effects than sort of some of the other population groups. Those things are are very true and very prevalent. And they're very much part of the conversation about getting the shots in the arms and about getting the rest of this these population groups converted. But at the same point, you have to say that it is encouraging that some of those very early concerns about the group being left out of the vaccination process is not actually occurring three months into this effort. So we could we could give some credit to the kind of mobilization by the Biden uh, administration in trying to really, at a local and targeted level, address all of these things. These numbers, these numbers in a way, 
The big aggregate number moving to two-thirds of our population being eager, positive, that is a wholesale win, it seems to me, for this administration in saying that two-thirds of the American people are happy and eager. Yeah, it's a win for the country. It's a win for the nation. I think it also, I mean, partially is just the fact that in December, in September, October, when people started first asking about vaccine intentions, we were talking about something that was very hypothetical, right? There was maybe going to be a vaccine. Who knew what vaccine it was going to be? And so just shifting from a hypothetical to a reality shifted many people. And then actually getting the shots available to people and trying to alleviate as many barriers as possible, which really has changed with the change in the administration. That also certainly has helped dramatically. It doesn't mean we're out of the woods yet, right? (laughs) There's still a lot of work to do. There's still a lot of shots to get in the arms, but it has, it has definitely helped us get there. Let's shift a bit to talk about Republicans and evangelicals. Over to Andrew. Thanks, Steve. Molly, let's talk about Republicans, as Steve just said, and particular Republican men. We still have polls that show 50% of Republican men don't want to be vaccinated. Is this, you know, just an issue of politicization or communication? What What's going on with this? Yeah, it is true. And in all of our data, and again, I want to take the step back and say that we can't talk about any group as monolithic, because even when we talk about Republicans, Republican men, white evangelical, which are certainly the groups that are the most resistant, and we'll, I'll 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 answer your question in a second. There are still large, large shares of all of these groups who are eager or already vaccinated. And there are some, you know, middle share who is still sitting on the fence. But it is true that particularly for Republicans and white evangelicals right now, we're measuring about three in 10 in the definitely not group and another, as you say, almost 20 percent, more like 15 percent, I think, in the sort of only if required group. So they are very much disproportionately represented in the very reluctant group and the groups that we really are going to have to keep um, paying a lot of attention to. Where is that coming from? There's never been any historical medical wrongs done to this group. Where is that coming from? Yeah, you know, I think it is very much stemming from how the pandemic was initially communicated and And everything that happened over the year from that March when we first, you know, saw the pandemic take root over the course of the election, there was so much politicalization about the virus and about the acts that were taken to try to stem the virus. And those public health measures, the quarantining, the shutting down, the mask wearing, they were communicated in a very politicalized way. And so these groups and, you know, Republican men, white evangelicals, very much were focused on a piece of the story that was about taking away personal liberties. Their storyline was very much that we were taking extreme response to something that in their mind and in the media that they were paying most attention to was being exaggerated in terms of its impact. And that they were, you know, affecting our personal liberties, our economic situation, stopping us from our economic livelihood. And that was the media narrative that they were privy to, almost 
consistently. And it was very much what their leaders were telling them, right? You know, President Trump had a certain perspective about the pandemic, as did many of the leaders. And um, it became very politicized, very much a distrust in, um, we, we always know that these groups have a lower level of trust of the federal government to start with. But at the time, then they had a very big distrust of our public health national leaders. So Dr. Fauci's reputation among this group fell dramatically over the course of the year. Even, you know, Dr. Brix's ratings were lower than you would have imagined a Republican appointee over the years. So there was very much a politicalization, but there is, it's not just politics. And I think that's what's important now as we're moving forward. This group and in listening to them and in, in listening to their concerns and asking them to share in their own words, they have their own sets of concerns that they want to address before they're going to um, even consider taking this vaccine. And so it's something that we can talk till we're blue in the face about how it got to this point or what the blame is or where the mistakes were made or how it could have been different. But at this point, I think it's really talking about shifting the focus to what do we need to do going forward with this, this population groups in particular. And, you know, we, one of the things as a nation we need to do is stop shaming, right? We need to really accept people where they are and accept and answer and address honestly their concerns, tell them what we know and what we don't know and really take their concerns as a valid starting point in a conversation if we're going to get people to convert to deciding for themselves, really, that the vaccine is the right choice for them. So, Molly, and let me ask this. If we're now seeing, as CDC reported on Sunday, that half of American adults now have at least one shot, 85 million Americans now are fully vaccinated, and that's allowing us to start thinking about being able to go without masks in public, being able to open up all kinds of things, being able to eat inside, being able to visit with our our parents and grandparents. Aren't those factors influencing some people in the group we were just talking about, the evangelicals, the white Republican men who had been hesitant, who had been confused, maybe who had been, you know, just refusing to get vaccinated? Are you seeing any changes in, in the way they're thinking about it now that there's such a critical mass? Yeah, well, I mean, I will say that, you know, like all the other groups, there was a big chunk of these groups in that center, wait and see, and they have moved to eager like the other groups that we've talked about. So for, for and again, no group is monolithic. Within people who self-identify as Republicans, within white evangelicals, there have been many who are already vaccinated. There have been many who have moved from wait and see to getting vaccinated for very many of the same reasons you just outlined. But there is this larger share, and I'd say, you know, right now, let's name it about three and 10 might be a little bit bigger, who is pretty dug in. And what they might say to you is that, you know what, we've been doing that anyway. We've been going to restaurants, we've been going out without masks. I didn't get sick. Or if I did get sick, that was my choice to get sick. You know, I've listened to focus groups where a Republican woman talked about her, her husband almost died, but she was still reluctant to get the vaccine for all sorts of reasons. So it is a complex set of factors going on there. I do think, and you know, what we have seen in our research and what many others have seen in their own research is that this definitely not group is very dug in and really nothing that we have thrown at them in a survey questionnaire has caused them to tell us very much that they're willing to move. But at the margin, at the edges, carrots seem to be working better than sticks, right? This is already a group who feels maligned. They feel like they've been 
uh, demonized in the press. They feel like, you know, they have been, you know, told they're crazy when they don't feel like they are. And I feel like things that are carrots, when we've talked about you know, when they, they talk about, well, if I can go see my mother in the nursing home, then may, maybe I'll get vaccinated, right? If it's going to affect my travel ability to go overseas, then I'll consider getting vaccinated. If it's going to change, if my employer is going to give me a bonus to be able to get vaccinated. There, there are some there are some carrots that I think work at a, for a smaller sliver of this group. And that's where we need to keep doing some more research and um, more focus and also see over time. I'll say one more thing about this group. A lot of this group that's really dug in are sort of younger people as well. And, you know, younger people haven't had the opportunity really to get vaccinated in much of the country until today, right? Today's the day where we're opening it up. And one of the things we've seen in our research is that all groups are more likely to be interested in getting vaccinated once they see that their friends and family have safely gotten vaccinated. So as I think more and more sort of young people in this group see friends and their friends and getting vaccinated, the more likely we are to see more of them. So I think that this next month or so is really critical. I don't know quite, you know, where we're going to end up, but I'm hopeful that some of the trends we've seen with other groups, we will see with young people and even young Republicans, young conservatives, and that some of that will matter. And some of the colleges and their requirements may have something to do with that. And making it easy for folks will have something to do with that. And it is definitely a challenge, but it is definitely an important challenge to not shy away from because we need everybody to be vaccinated. <laughs> the one thing that's, that, that jumps out from this discussion is that, you know, we're moving out of scarcity of vaccines into abundance. Some are going unused now because the demand is slacking off and we're now looking out and saying, but wait a second, there's a lot of people out there who aren't vaccinated. Who's resistant? Who's dug in hard? Who's still in the middle? And we're seeing more and more of a, of a partisan face to that when you have three and 10. It's not entirely partisan, but the, the hard over refusals and the in the middle hanging back is becoming more and more of a partisanized reality. And that is a little dangerous, it seems to me, because it belies the whole vision that this is something that should unify Americans versus divide. And it has the prospect of leaving the country fragmented geographically as well. I mean, mm -hmm. we can wind up with pockets in the South and pockets in other areas. I wanted you to say a bit about what the really great rural survey that you did brought forward, but it could leave us as a country with a fragmentation. My question is, are we heading into a different phase now where the resistance, the refusal or hesitancy has a very stark partisan quality to it. And it's also ge geographically fragmented. And what does that mean potentially if that becomes a more per permanent and consolidated feature of our country? You just outlined a real concern. And I think right now where we at, we're at is there's sort of two at least two paths, right, that we need to stay focused on. We really need to continue to convert the eager and the wait and see groups who have like legitimate information concerns and real concerns about side effects and things. We need to, they, they have to convert. Some of them will be complacent, right? And they'll say, oh yeah, I'm eager, I'm eager, but I still haven't gotten, and I still haven't gotten my appointment. And there's something there that's going to hold them back. So we can't forget about continuing to work on on this 
segment of the population. But you're right, as we move forward and as we move into the summer, focusing on this definitely not group is going to be key. And the definitely not group really needs to be talked to in the perspective that it, it's they, they feel very strongly, almost uniformly, that it is their personal choice to decide whether or not to do this. That this isn't about what's best for society or whatever. This is what's best for me and my family. And right now, my choice is that it's not best for me and my family. So it's very much about changing that mindset. Do we need a new strategy, Molly? in for this? I mean, I do. I think that this, this group requires a different sort of conversations and it is going to be conversations amongst themselves, amongst their own trusted messengers, their own physicians, their own family members that will be necessary to convert them. It is definitely has a partisan conservative face on it. Um, you can't deny that. And as you mentioned, the focus in the rural areas, when we did this, we did a huge survey of rural America. Over a thousand adults were in the rural area. So we really could look at things like very, very rural, somewhat rural, issues with access, lengths of time to get to vaccination, attitudes about whether um, the vaccines were available, all sorts of attitudes. And probably the most important finding from that study, there's lots of key information, but the most important finding from that study is every measure that we have that suggests that rural America might be towards the end in terms of getting fully vaccinated is because they have a disproportionate share of their population who identify as Republicans and white evangelicals. So it's not about living in rural America that makes you less likely to want to get vaccinated. It's nothing about the distribution or the availability in rural America that will change their ultimate acceptance rates. It's about who lives in rural America. So again, like all other groups, the vast majority of rural America is eager to get vaccinated, has already been vaccinated. That's what we've seen everywhere. But in addition, they have a larger share on the other side of the definitely nots. And the reason rural America has a larger share of definitely nots is just about solely because of who lives there and more likely to have Republicans white evangelicals, conservative people living in rural America. So therefore, there will be, I think, a bigger challenge exactly to the geographic differences that you pointed out could be a real problem in some parts of America. So why do you think these people have become so immovable, the ones who are immovable? And and what needs to be done, you know, according to the research you guys have done, what what needs to be done to actually move them? If we're in a place where, you know, we're facing geographic issues, we're facing political issues, is there anything that can be done to change this? I think it's going to be challenging. I think it's, again, accepting where they are, accepting that the underlying beliefs, it's a personal choice they're not nearly as worried about getting sick from the virus. They think it's been entirely exaggerated. They are worried about personal liberties being taken away from them, respecting all of those beliefs and giving them the facts in a very non-politicalized sense, just saying it like it is from doctors, from healthcare professionals that they trust, from people who they know in their community, who they trust their and share their same political beliefs, once you can get past politics with them and talk just about the situation and about what it might mean for them and their family, 
we have a much better chance of converting them to getting vaccinated. So it's in a sense, it's taking the politics out of it, the politics that has been there for this group in particular the whole time, and then really giving them a chance to have their questions and concerns answered by people they trust. Do we understand well enough how they're gathering their information? You know, I sort of think we do, right? We know the vast majority of where their media sources are. And, you know, we know the narratives that were prevalent on those media sources over the course of the year. And are still prevalent. I I mean, as soon as the J&J was paused, you know, the anti-vaxxer rhetoric ramped straight up again. And, you know, all of a sudden it was called into question, you know, well, if J&J paused over six you know, people having some issues, then what does that mean for the rest of us? And what does that mean for the other two vaccines, Moderna and Pfizer and, you know, so on and so forth? Right. And I think it's really important here to separate out real anti-vaxxers from people who have concerns and questions about a brand new vaccine that they saw show up really fast and just not knowing enough about it and having it you know, and just needing to understand more about the 20 years of research that went into the development of this sort of technology, really understanding that it was really getting rid of red tape and putting resources that helped move this vaccine through the regulation process faster than a normal everyday vaccine. It's most of the people in this definitely not group are not anti-vaxxers. The vast majority of them have vaccinated their children, have gotten vaccines themselves. So I think it's really important to separate out the very nefarious actors out there that are very active right now and having their way with lots of people from just very legitimate misinformation being spread out of concern. So one of the things that we found, and this is particularly true for the Black and Hispanic populations, is whether or not you can get COVID itself, you can get COVID-19, you can get infected from the vaccine. And this is still just a fundamental fact that is not well understood. And I know there's been thousands of articles about it, but this basic fact that you can't just because there are side effects and the side effects mimic some of what you've heard about people who have COVID, there is this real misperception and real concern about the the vaccine and getting sick from the vaccine is worse than what so many people I saw get COVID. They didn't get a very bad case. So I think when we talk about motivators, right, the variants, the fact that they're more infectious and cause greater illness, like that's going to be a motivator to some of these people who are sitting in the middle. And that actually might help with some of these definitely not folks as well is understanding that, well, you know, that earlier version of COVID, I didn't think was very dangerous. I thought we overreacted as a nation. We shouldn't have shut down. It's ridiculous that they took away all the all my personal liberties. But these new variants are scary enough and they're affecting young people and they're affecting them in a point in a point that that actually might change my mind about it. And again, it's getting the politics out of it and talking about what the reality is, talking about what we really know and what we don't know and being honest about what we don't know. So I, I understand and I totally agree with you about what some of the media and some of the anti-vaxxers may have done with something like J&J. But the other side of that is that it has shown people who are in the middle who are sort of questioning that the nation is taking the safety of these vaccines very 
cautiously and being very careful about it. And that may help as many people convert as it might hurt. And we just don't know yet. It's too early to tell what the impact of the J&J is going to be. I just want to follow up on what Andrew was pointing towards. I mean, we've we heard just recently when when Heidi Larson was presenting uh, to an event where, where you were with us, you know, she she put up data across many different countries showing rather striking volatility of opinion, that there were wild swings. And that says that to me, that says that opinion is not quite on a kind of permanent trajectory necessarily. People can reverse course. There can be regression. There, there can be accelerated positive change, as we've seen here. But that we may be in a moment of a kind of volatility here ourselves today with the variants with the pause of the J&J, with the cerebral thrombosis cases, with the those adenoviral vectors, AstraZeneca, J&J, and with just a lot of, un, you know, a little bit of un, unsettled feeling within the population about where is this going and how well are we doing and will these vaccines really ha- hold their impact over time or, or the lot? And do you sense that yourself that we've entered this moment of a, optimism and peril and a little volatility on top of this. Are you detecting that? Yeah, you know, we're in the field right now, and I'll have an answer to that relatively soon. But I do think it's a little bit too early to tell. Some of the initial polling suggests that that what you describe might really be true. And it's one of the reasons why I do keep emphasizing how important it is that we don't forget that there's a lot of people still in the as soon as possible and the wait and see who are movable. If those folks get cold feet, right? If those yeah. folks slow down their eagerness to get to, if they get complacent about actually getting the shot in their arm, that could present a much bigger challenge to the nation than even this definitely not group, right? So I, you know, I don't want us as a nation to forget how important and how critical it is to stay focused on continuing to convert every person who says I want it as soon as possible, but they don't have an appointment yet. And they're not like me who set my alarm at like midnight and four in the morning to try to get an appointment because I was so eager. Right. (laughs) So, you know, I I know that there are people like that and this in the news about J and J can work one way. The news about the variants can work another way. Right. The issues about what does it mean to go back to work? What are our employers going to require a vaccination to, for you to be back at work? What's going to, what is it going to mean for travel? What is it going to mean about opening up? People want to hug their kids. People want to hug their friends and family, right? And so all this, it, it is, I mean, in a sense, there is so much uncertainty and, you know, n- no human being does well with uncertainty. There's very few people who are good at uncertainty, except maybe statisticians who can, who can really like process it in their brain. But the rest of us, you know, that uncertainty does create an environment where opinion is more movable and it may ebb and flow. And that's why I want to make sure that we are staying focused on converting every last person we can convert, especially the easier to convert ones, as we are separately working on these very, very entrenched groups and trying to figure out what might help with them. How would you evaluate the communication efforts so far at the federal level? I mean, one of the biggest problems is is that you've got the federal government, the Biden administration, communicating to the 
you know, to the nation about what's going on. But then you have a lot of state level communications as well. And then you have a lot of local communications going on about vaccines too. It all contributes to an awful lot of confusion. And I hear from even people like you and me who get up at, you know, four in the morning to register that there's a lot of confusion and there's a lot of things they don't understand. And then there's a lot of rules they don't understand even once they're vaccinated. Can they be in the same room with other family members who have been vaccinated without masks and so forth. And you could go on and on about all the different things we just don't know yet. So what do you think of the communication efforts so far and how they're all fitting in with each other? And and, and how are you seeing that playing out in the polling efforts and the, the research you're gathering? I think that's a really excellent question. And I think that what we know from our surveys is that people are getting a lot of information from a lot of different sources, right? They certainly are getting it from their news, primary news sources. They're getting it from social media. They're getting it from their friends and family. Where people tell us they want to turn to for information is their healthcare providers, right? You know, that's who's the most trusted. That's where they want to go. So the vast amount of the different communication efforts out there, I think, at the end of the day, it gives people lots of different places to maybe hear something and to maybe learn something. And I think at the end of the day, that's important. It does create the potential for conflicting information. It does create the potential for having questions. But as long as we can continue to help people have safe places to go to get their real questions answered, we'll be able to continue to convert people. And so it's staying focused on healthcare providers, on nurses, on people that can have those one-on-one conversations. And that's where so much of the very, very hyper-local efforts are so important, where they're really getting people out in the communities to be able to answer. I mean, because every individual, I mean, I can tell you where the rank order of concerns are, but I can also tell you that in every conversation I have, some of these things, one person, it, it's it's the concern about side effects. The next person is the concern about how fast they were developed. The next person, it's the concern about missing work. And their second concern is one of those other ones. But where I start in that conversation, my first question for everybody is, well, what is it that you're concerned about? Or what is it that's stopping you from immediately getting vaccinated? And then I know where to start my conversation. And that's what I think these, these hyper-local efforts are doing and are trying to do well, is to give each individual somebody that they can have that kind of conversation with. And that's what's so challenging about these big global national communication efforts. I think they're doing the best they possibly can of creating an environment of recognizing that people have real questions that need answered. But I don't, I don't think we can count on any sort of global national, you know, national one-stop message to convert everyone, right? This is a, this is an individual to individual, person to person conversation hopefully person to educated person, educated in terms of healthcare professional that they trust, or somebody that comes from their same community that they trust to give them what they need to be able to decide for themselves that it is really the right choice for them and their family. What do we not know? Like, what are the gaps? uh, What are the unknowns that we need to illuminate in this next phase that is still in the dark, in your view? Yeah, I think we've talked about the one that is still, you know, keeping me up at night, which is what are, what are true motivators? What are conversations with the very dug in, definitely not group? I think at this point, nobody knows exactly where to get a lot of purchase among that group. We know a little bit here and there. I think the other thing that we don't 
really know is how much some of the concerns that I think Andrew just raised this issue about, well, as the science is trying to catch up with what is it going to mean for when you're going to need a booster? What does it mean for being able to go back to a normal life? When do you have to wear masks? Can you go into the office and actually have meetings with people? Like a lot of that science sort of catching up with what people's expectations are. I think we don't know entirely how that will affect this group that's sort of still sitting on the fence, right? If they, if they see if like, look, I'm really worried about side effects. I'm legitimately really worried about how my body is going to react to the side effects. I've seen people be really sick for a couple days. I'm more worried about that than I am actually catching the virus. And you're telling me I'm still going to have to wear a mask and I'm not going to be able to go back to the office and I'm still not going to be able to go into the nursing home. Like, like that, that could really create a sort of a slowing down on vaccine acceptance. And I don't think we totally know how much those will or will not cause breaking in this eagerness that we've seen so far moving relatively fast, which is, I, I think, faster than a lot of people expected. I mean, quite frankly. So our question that we always ask all of our guests is what, what really gives you the greatest optimism going forward amidst all of this? I will say two things. Watching the data and the fast, dynamic movement of vaccine acceptance and enthusiasm, that gives me a lot of hope and optimism. And then the second thing is all the conversations that I've had like this, especially with people who are on the ground, who there are so many individuals, organizations, people coming together to try to help us get to herd immunity. And that is so hopeful. I, I have been at so many conversations with people who are on the ground working to get more mobile clinics, getting same day appointments, just walk up appointments, uh, moving that into communities, particularly communities where there is distrust and making sure that you can have a conversation with just somebody in the community and then they can bring their friend along and just get vaccinated. It's these kinds of efforts. And, you know, many of them are grassroots efforts. Many of them are organized efforts. The amount of pool that we have of resources and focus in this nation right now on this one problem is incredible. I, I haven't seen a movement like this in my lifetime. And so that gives me a lot of hope and optimism. There are millions and millions and millions of people trying to help us achieve a great outcome here. And that gives me hope. Now, that's the best answer that I've heard on this entire podcast since we started on optimism. So we'll take that one, Steve. Yes, that one's in the can. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. Coronavirus Crisis Update is produced by Liz Ulver and Samantha Chivers. You can find our full catalog of podcasts, including Pandemic Planet and AIDS 2021, on our homepage at csis.org slash podcasts. Thank you.